the risk of cancer is increasing. Alcohol is a class one carcinogen. We, we've known this for decades. And it also has an impact in terms of the heart, the liver, um, other, other organ systems. And unfortunately, when we, we drink, we can't pick or choose whether or not it's going to this organ or that organ or this cancer or this other cancer. We, we, it affects the whole body. We don't choose when we drink what impact it's going to have in terms of our health. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. The world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread the rational view by going to patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Together, we can make a better future. Hello and welcome to The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I want to dig into the impacts of alcohol on your health, a subject that's near and dear to the hearts of many. We've all heard stories in the news saying that a glass of red wine every day can help you live longer. This has been used by scientists to try to explain why people with a Mediterranean diet heavy in, in fats and rich foods seem to live longer than North Americans on a similar diet. For example, the resveratrol in the red wine is a compound which is supposed to be an antioxidant is hypothesized to prevent cellular damage associated with aging and help us fight off the effects of the ethanol, uh, which is a toxin on the body. One can search the literature to find examples of studies that show people who drink a moderate amount of alcohol have longer lives. Until recently, Canadian health guidelines have suggested that one or two alcoholic beverages a day are nothing to be worried about. But recently, these guidelines have have been changed, and now new guidance suggests you should be targeting only one or two alcoholic drinks a week. My guest today has been directly involved with these evolving health guidelines associated with alcohol consumption. If you like what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app. Leave me a review on your podcast app if you could. uh, And join us in our discussion on my Facebook group, The Rational View. Please support the podcast at patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Dr. Peter Butt is a certificate and fellow with the College of Family Physicians of Canada with special competency in addiction medicine. He is a clinical associate professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan and served as a consultant in addiction medicine in the Saskatchewan Health Authority. His research has included guideline development and knowledge translation. He chaired the original development of Canada's low-risk drinking guidelines in 2011, co-chaired the Canadian Guidelines on Alcohol Use Disorder among Older Adults in 2019, and co-chaired the 2023 Canadian Guidance on Alcohol and Health with the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction. Dr. Butt, welcome to The Rational View. Thank you very much. Now, could you tell us a little bit about your background and, and career path and why you've focused on addiction medicine as your specialty? Well, my background is in family medicine. I worked in a rural community for a number of years and um, certainly 
there in a relatively small northern community, there was there were high levels of uh, challenges with regards to alcohol use. This would have been back in the 80s, which um, became of even more interest to me when I went into emergency medicine after moving back into Saskatoon, into a larger centre. And uh, during that period of time, took additional training in terms of uh, alcohol counselling, uh, primarily because substance use disorders were, were a challenge in the emergency department, and I saw it as a, an important place to focus my continuing professional development in terms of my career. Indeed, when I, I left uh, emergency medicine and joined the University of Saskatchewan, my um, clinical activity shifted to a focus uh, entirely dedicated to addiction medicine. And primarily in the area of opioids, but also alcohol, stimulants, sedatives, and, and other drugs. Okay, okay. Very interesting. So you've now chaired or co-chaired many uh, committees working on guidelines on the consumption of alcohol for, for Canada. Um, the earlier guidelines, I think many of us are aware of from 2011, suggested I think that one or two drinks a day was a reasonable, reasonably safe level for Canadians. The recent guidelines that you've uh, issued have tightened up to a limit of one or two drinks per week. For people without a background in this work that you're doing, um, could you maybe just walk us through the process that that was taken to reach these guidelines and, and who these committees are? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. But there, there's an important correction to be made here. Um, first of all, in terms of the 2011 guidelines, it was uh, recommended no more than two per day for women, no more than 10 per week in terms of standard drinks. For men, no more than three per day, 15 per week. So if you were drinking up to the top limit per day, you needed to take a, a day or two off per week in order to stay within the weekly consumption amounts. And that used mathematical modeling and, and other approaches. The um, current ones have evolved quite a bit for, for a number of different reasons. But I think it's really, really important at the outset to uh, clarify that we're not recommending no more than two standard drinks per week. In our guidance, and we no longer call it the lowest drinking guidelines, it's, it's called the Canadian Guidance on Alcohol and Health. What we recommend is that Canadians reduce their alcohol consumption in order to improve their health. The, um, in order to do that, we're presenting risk zones. So two standard drinks per week would be low risk, three to six, moderate risk, seven plus would be increasingly high risk. And, and really, the exercise is to encourage people to reflect on their drinking, um, consider reducing the amount and providing them with information because people have the right to know with regards to the, the risks and harms that alcohol poses to, to health. But with regards to this, the evolution of the science in the past decade, there's been a number of changes that are important in terms of guidelines for developing guidelines, much more rigorous with regards to reviewing the evidence. There are tools such as AMSTAR that are used to look at the validity of, of guidelines. There were um, guidelines that were developed by the UK in 2014 that uh, recommended a reduction. 
And Australia, they came out in about 2020, 2021 with, with their guidelines, which again were a reduction from what they had previously. So when we received the funding from Health Canada through the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction, we, we started off reviewing those guidelines, particularly the most recent ones out of Australia. And that provided us with a good literature or evidence review up to 2017. And then we had to build on that from 2017 to 2021. And there were almost 6,000 uh, different studies, uh, a number of systematic reviews, meta-analyses. We and In order to do the mathematical modeling, we landed on 16 systematic reviews or meta-analyses. And as you know, these represent a plethora of studies on alcohol and health, but put them through a filter that... Uh, gave us greater confidence in terms of the rigor of the evidence. And, and that was used to plot that relationship between, well, what is the impact of alcohol on people's health? Mm -hmm. Now, before we get too deeply into the, into the science, I just want to step back a, a bit and, and just help everyone to understand, you know, who you are and who the committee is. And you said this was a, a Health Canada grant to uh, a particular um, group. Like who was who funding the group and who, who motivated this? This was um, funded by Health Canada because uh, they were concerned with the, the new evidence was, that was coming forth, that the previous guidelines were too high. And there was also evidence that people were actually coming to harm drinking within the, the previous guidelines. So Health Canada wanted an update. And uh, they provided the grant to the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction, which is uh, an entity created by uh, Parliament, actually, and funded by, by the government to do uh, research and knowledge mobilization and system development within the domain of substance use. There were 23 different panel members representing 16 different organizations that, that served as the experts for the, for the uh, project. And we focused primarily in, in three areas. One was a, a committee that looked at the physical effects. Others looked at the mental health and, and social effects. And another cohort were recruited around knowledge mobilization. As it transpired, though, everyone was interested in, there was, in everything else, and there was such an overlap um, that we ended up doing it as a, as a large collective group. Everyone had to go through a very rigorous conflict of interest analysis. There are international guidelines on conflict of interest. And uh, this was done not only by myself and Dr. Parody, who is the co-chair uh, from CCSA, but also with oversight and direction from the Public Health Agency of Canada. So we were able to ensure that there were no significant conflicts of interest, address any that um, people disclose that might be perceived as such, and, and so on. So we were able to um, lay the groundwork with the people with the, the best knowledge in this domain of alcohol and health that we could find within the country. So talking about the science now, you said you looked at six, there were 16 systematic reviews in the timescale uh, that you were looking at, uh, which I assume was looking at a whole bunch of study data on the impacts of, of alcohol use? 
on health? Yes, yes. So we, we had the advantage of being able to do an AMSTAR analysis of the guidelines that came out of the, the UK and Australia, focused primarily on Australia. It, it's a type of um, an analytic tool that, that helps people to analyze the rigor of guidelines. Were they developed? Was there a conflict of interest uh, process, for instance? How rigorously was that followed? What was the, um, how did they grade or, or the evidence that they used? What was their literature search? Who did it? Um, these sorts of things, again, it has to be reported in a very transparent fashion in order to be just, to be considered uh, rigorous and uh, appropriate because there's, there's industry funding, of course, in, in this area, just like there is with pharmaceutical companies. And one has to be really careful about how studies are done, whether or not it's transparent, is there a conflict of interest, in order to be able to decide, well, can we use this evidence or, can, or, or do we reject it? And, and, that led, and that's why, yes, it, it went from a sort of a distillation process, six, almost 6,000 um, studies from 2017 to 2021. And in order to do the mathematical modeling, what one needs to do is, is to develop a risk relationship between the amount of alcohol consumed in the development of disease or disability in conditions that are causally associated with alcohol. So there are about 200 different conditions that are causally associated with alcohol, heart disease, cancer, liver disease, and so on. So what you need to do is, is find the risk ratio between those entities and the amount of alcohol people are drinking to develop the curve with regards to increased consumption, increased harm across these different, different uh, conditions. And what we landed on was uh, years of life lost as uh, one analysis. And it, was, uh, it ended up being 17.5 years of life lost was um, what was critical with regards to the risk of, of harm. Our benchmark was different uh, than it was before. We used a, um, a controlled population previously of current abstainers. The problem with current abstainers, when you use them as a control group, is that it includes sick quitters, people who have stopped drinking because of the medication they're on, because of their ill health, because of a number of other uh, situations that have led them to, to stop drinking. So they're not necessarily a healthy group entirely when you look at current abstainers, as opposed to the control group that we used, which were lifetime abstainers. Because we really wanted to look at, well, what's the impact of health as you increase consumption, uh, impact of alcohol on health as you increase consumption? The best control group of people that never drank. So we use that as a benchmark and uh, ended up with 16 systematic reviews that had distilled down the, the evidence and the data from a plethora of, of other studies which is the way that a meta-analysis is done or a systematic review is done. They look at all pertinent studies um, pertaining to the question, make sure that they, they've all been done in a rigorous way so that the data that's extracted could be uh, relied upon as the best current evidence. Risk curves were then generated 
by uh, Dr. Kevin Shields, who's uh, a scholar at CAMH, but also does this for the World Health Organization. He has an international reputation. Uh, we're very fortunate to have him um, as part of the project. And what we wanted to know was, you know, is there any risk or benefit in terms of physical health, mental health? Um, what, what were the harms and benefits uh, related to, to exposure to alcohol. And of course, we also wanted to know whether or not there was a difference between males and females, whether or not there was a difference, in, in, and also whether or not it would change recommendations around reproductive health, pregnancy, trying to get pregnant, breastfeeding, and so on. So you have, um, uh, the, the guidelines that you came out with said that three to six drinks was moderate risk. Could you quantify for us what moderate risk meant on the curve that of of risk you said 17 and a half years of life lost was a criteria that you used was that for moderate or or high risk or, or you know maybe just give us some some statistics here uh, absolutely so in order to, we we wanted uh, two different cut points or if you will one was the one death or one premature death in a thousand level and uh, we used one in 1,000 in terms of the risk of premature death, which is the 17.5 years of life lost, because that's the one that internationally is epidemiologically used to um, define an acceptable voluntary level of risk. So one in a million in terms of the risk of, of death or death disability is what we use for involuntary exposure to things like air, quality of air, pollution, water pollution, toxins in the environment, that sort of thing. But for voluntary activity like unprotected sex or, or whatever, people tend to uh, accept a, a higher level of risk. They're, they're making a choice. It's not being imposed upon them. And that's where, that's where the one in 1,000 uh, risk point is in terms of uh, one in 1,000 people will have their life prematurely terminated by 17 and a half years simply by consuming alcohol. That landed on the two standard drinks per week. So two standard drinks, up to two standard drinks gets you to that one in 1,000 risk level. We then wanted to, to look at a risk level that's 10 times higher, which is one in 100. Now, one in 100 is what's traditionally been used in looking at low-risk drinking guidelines because of people's attitude and relationship with beverage alcohol. It's, it's for social, it's for cultural, and it's for financial reasons that internationally they tend to use that one in 100 level of risk which means that out of 100 people drinking alcohol, one of them is going to die prematurely um, because of their alcohol use. That's 10 times higher than the voluntary risk level, and that came out at six standard drinks per week. That's there for social and cultural reasons. That's there because of our relationship with alcohol. That's there because people enjoy it. They use it for socializing. Uh, there's a host of things that's much harder to quantify around that relationship. And we wanted that cut point because, again, that's what other um, countries have used internationally. That's what we used back in, in 2011. But it doesn't 
it doesn't reflect the impact of um, alcohol on health. That net impact is caught between three and six standard drinks per week. And already at that level, which, you know, admittedly is, is pretty low compared to what we were talking about in 2011, um, the risk of cancer is increasing. Alcohol is a class one carcinogen. We, we've known this for decades. And it also has an impact in terms of the heart, the liver, um, other, other organ systems. And unfortunately, when we, we drink, we can't pick or choose whether or not it's going to this organ or that organ or this cancer or this other cancer. We, we, it affects the whole body. We don't choose when we drink what impact it's going to have in terms of our health. So we need to look at that net health benefit. And then what we recognized is that seven standard drinks and more per week, we're, we're getting above that one in 100 risk level and increasingly higher risk of uh, harm. Yeah, I looked up um, some of the data that was referenced in a, in a popular article reviewing the, the new guidelines. And the, one of the papers uh, was quantifying the equivalency of a one bottle of wine per week uh, absolute lifetime cancer risk for non-smokers. And it said, you know, basically at the one bottle level, it's a 1% absolute increase for men and 1.4% increase for women. And that was, and then they were trying to do an equating it to, to smoking uh, five cigarettes per week for a man or 10 cigarettes per week for a woman. So that kind of puts it into perspective with other known another known carcinogen and, and gives you kind of an absolute value in the cancer, only in the cancer scale. Um, obviously there are other things that you looked at in this, in this investigation. And, and for my listeners who, who know about <clears throat> nuclear power, which is another thing that we, we look at in, in radiation, um, that's the same uh, as the average acute radiation dose uh, estimated for Chernobyl liquidators. 100 millisieverts of exposure. So just to give you, to put you on the same level, a bottle of wine a week, a Chernobyl liquidator, or or, or five cigarettes a week. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's, you know, a bottle of wine, depending upon the alcohol concentration, because it is variable, it's about five to six standard drinks and, and Canadian standard drinks. Now, the problem with international comparisons is that a standard unit in the UK is about eight grams of alcohol, uh, a standard drink in Australia is 10 grams of alcohol. So, you know, when you're comparing internationally these uh, guidelines, you need to keep in mind that a Canadian standard drink is 13.45 grams of alcohol. So considerably more than, than units in the UK and standard drinks in Australia. We don't have a, an international standard. So when, when people are looking at this and saying, well, in, in Australia, they recommend 10 standard drinks. Well, that's 10 Australian standard drinks, which is closer to seven of our standard drinks. Um, but with regards to the, the cancer analogy, you're absolutely right. And people want more concrete ways of looking at this. So if a bottle of wine has, let's say, five or six standard drinks, you're right. That would equate to five cigarettes for men, 10 cigarettes for women. Now, the problem with using that comparison is that people might think, well, you know, I have a bottle of wine. I can, that means I can smoke. <laughs> wine doesn't cause me any problems. In fact, I think it's good for my health. So I can, I can smoke and everything will be fine too. 
So it depends on how they, they look at this. It, it's a good comparison from a cancer point of view, but sometimes there's unintended consequences when we use those sorts of comparisons and people might minimize the, the cancer effects. Did you look, as an addiction specialist yourself, did you, uh, is there any way to quantify the addiction risks on and the effect of guidelines and, and interplay between addiction and guidelines? Is that, is that something that entered your mind as a committee or was, was discussed? That, that was less of an issue because we, although it's certainly there in terms of a risk of developing an alcohol use disorder, we were more interested in, in some of the other um, conditions that were easier to, to quantify uh, with risk curves. And there's um, a host of other variables that come into play in terms of the development of an alcohol use disorder, certainly genetics, but also the experience of trauma, uh, PTSD, adverse childhood experiences, and so on. And, and if we look at it through the lens of an alcohol use disorder, th this guidance is, is uh, very much about primary or secondary prevention. It's not about treatment. And unfortunately, sometimes people conflate the guidance and low-risk drinking as, as a way of treating an alcohol use disorder. And that, that's not the case at all. Um, this is about preventing the development of one by providing people with better health-based information, more factual information. So I want to dig in a little bit more and just, you know, uh, bring up the, the, the what it, or the, the uh, things that people might be, the questions people might be asking about this research uh, from popular coverage that most people have heard, this is a significant change from previous guidance. Um, now, the, the justification, of course, is that lifetime cancer risk is increased at moderate levels of consumption. However, there has been previous research that was highly popularized that hinted that people who drink moderate amounts of red wine, for example, have an increased overall life expectancy or as they, they say in the technical papers, decreased all-cause mortality over those that do not. So it was hypothesized when these results were originally released that antioxidants like resveratrol in the wine had a protective effect on, on cells and prevented effects of aging and offset some of the, the bad stuff from the ethanol. And this, of course, was loaded, lauded by a majority of, of drinkers as great news. And, and many bottles of wine were uncorked as a result. So what, what was wrong with this earlier research and why was it, was it overturned by recent studies or is, is it, have we learned more? What, what's, what's happened in the interim? Absolutely. With regards to alcohol and heart health, it's uh, evolved, it's changed considerably. Indeed, in um, 2021 or 2022, the World Heart Federation came out with a policy statement and upon their review of the literature, what they said is that alcohol is not good for the heart, period. Now, there are some cardiologists that um, still believe that it, it is and might be making the recommendation. There are cardiologists funded by the industry that are out there pr still continuing to promote alcohol and, and um, as, a, as medicine for the heart. But the, the evidence has certainly evolved. And, and a lot of that original evidence came from... Uh, studies of the Mediterranean diet and um, the, the role of alcohol in, in those cultures. There are 
somewhat distinct genetically. They tend to be uh, less sedentary than North Americans. And, and certainly the, um, the very healthy Mediterranean diet conflated some of the, or complicated some of the, the findings with regards to alcohol and heart health. Now, what we found, and this is limited to coronary artery disease, so ischemic heart disease, it ha- there seemed to be a very mild beneficial effect that was not statistically significant. And I think this is, um, you know, related to the belief that it, it has some benefit there. We couldn't find evidence of um, significant benefit or harm, on the other hand, with regards to coronary artery disease. But certainly there, there's um, increased uh, risk and harm with regards to high blood pressure, atrial fibrillation and flutter, other cardiac dysrhythmias, uh, strokes from bleeding, hemorrhagic strokes. But uh, that one narrow area where it's more neutral would be coronary artery disease, which of course is a a significant um, cause of mortality in our society. But we didn't find it to be um, beneficial at a statistically significant level. And also the... um, and this is based on, on population studies that, that include more diverse populations than the Mediterranean ones that also control for, for diet. But the um, other thing to keep in mind, again, is that if people might still want to drink for heart health, but what about their breast cancer risk? What about their colon cancer risk? What about their liver? Uh, what about other conditions that are causally associated with harms from from drinking alcohol. We can't select the organ or indeed the part of the organ that we want targeted. That's not the way it works when we're drinking a a potential toxin. Sure. I I think the the study that I I had seen anyways, and I don't know know, whether it's been... uh, whether they did something wrong or, or one of these confounding factors has... Uh, affected it, but it was looking at all-cause mortality, and they were saying that there was a J-curve, that it went down and then up uh, at some threshold of alcohol. So I maybe it's just statistically insignificant at this point. And, and certainly we saw that J-curve when we did the, the literature review back in 2011. Um, so yeah, more data there. now, and, and it's gone away. It's gone, yeah, it increasingly has disappeared as we became more rigorous in the analysis of of the evidence over time. And this is why, you know, I think that you've seen internationally this gradual decrease. Uh, 2014, the UK lowers drinking guidelines when you you quantify them in in Canadian standard drink units, came out about eight per week. The Australians came out about seven. And that was using that one in 100 risk uh, threshold using the one in 100 risk threshold. In our study, what we saw was uh, six standard drinks per week. So there's been a gradual decrease over time through a similar sort of international mathematical modeling as the evidence has has evolved. So, uh, you know, this is something that, that's really concerning to people. They they're, they get up, understandably upset. You know, what what the hell? You told us 10 years ago that it was good for your heart. Now you you tell us, well, you know, there's no safe level. Uh, this is not happy news for a lot of people. And, and it really is why we landed, instead of a specific number, why we landed on risk zones. 
you know, to really try and, and engage people to reflect on how much they're drinking, look at the risk zones and, and make better informed decisions. They have a right to know. They have a right to make their own decisions. And, um, you know, less is better when it comes to alcohol and, and health. So the the analysis that your group did um, in, in plotting risk levels versus um, intake, uh, is that going to be published in any scientific journals or it's obviously a seems like it would be a useful resource is has it been peer reviewed or is it just your committee that is has reviewed it well we have the technical documents that are posted on the ccsa website but in addition yes they have been sub submitted for publication and we're waiting to hear back with regards to um with a journal that'll pick them up and do the peer review we very much want that um out there in the in the marketplace, if you will, in the scientific domain. It, it's very important. And, and part of it is, is, again, we've been very transparent in using a net health lens with regards to these risk curves and showing the one in 1,000 plus the one in 100 thresholds. So again, it, it's, it's much more transparent than just landing on the one in 100 threshold and saying, well, it's six standard drinks per week or, and no more than two at a, at a city. I mean, we could have landed on that, but it, it, it wasn't as transparent as the uh, experts around the table, those uh, 23 individuals, really felt it should be. They said, you know, people have a right to know. We shouldn't be pulling the punches with regards to alcohol as opposed to other, other substances. Yeah, and it's difficult to get this this level of um, technical information from the popular press, because the popular press will latch on to something and, and you read it and say, like, well, well, what, there's something unsaid here. Like uh, the, the article that I read said, well, cancer deaths go up. So therefore this, but it's like, well, what about other deaths? You know, it wasn't even mentioned in the article. And it's, I, so that's why I wanted to talk to you and get, yeah, yeah, absolutely. get the real story as to, as to what it was based on. Sure. Sure. I mean, the, the topic of alcohol consumption is tendentious in, in, in any discussion <laughs> as yeah. an addictive substance. There is the possibility of motivated reasoning for some uh, users to justify their habits. Um, and I think uh, many, many tipplers at this point would want to cast you and your committee as a, as a bunch of prudish abstainers. So yeah, I've, uh, I've seen those articles. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, do you have a favorite alcoholic beverage or, and do you follow the new health guidelines? Well, I, I'm a person that uh, has chosen not to drink and that that's historic. That, that goes back, you know, back to the days that I did emergency medicine in a rural community. And I just developed an aversion to the smell of, of booze and blood, you know, too much time in trauma rooms. And it, it wasn't PTSD. I, it was just that the olfactory, association so that I, I I just really lost my desire to drink. And then, you know, there are other reasons as well in terms of uh, risk factors in our, my wife and, and mine, uh, extended families with regards to alcohol use disorder, concerns with how alcohol was being modeled in a small rural community, and the desire to model a different approach for our kids as they uh, grew up. So it, it just became a a way of, of life for us. But that doesn't, you know, I'm not part of the 
red wine police or anything like that. I, this is not about prohibition. It's not about abstinence. We're not landing on on a specific number and beating people up. We're, we're saying here, folks, is the evidence with regards to the impact of alcohol and health. Situate yourselves and, and, and you decide. And this is what can, in focus groups and so on, when we were at the beginning of this project, uh, we were told that people didn't want to be told what to do. They wanted the information. They wanted it clearly and transparently communicated. And um, they wanted to be left to make their own decisions. Thank you very much. And we've tried to respect that, uh, as well as the principles of people having the right to know and um, the need for this to be um, transparent in terms of, you know, the best thing is simply to reduce. So you've, you've been in the business of analyzing the, the data on alcohol and health for, for now over a decade. Um, how much more, are you more certain now than when you originally came out with guidelines back in 2011? Like how did you, can you compare your, your, your level of scientific um, confidence, I guess, in, in your results at this point? Is this the final word or are we going to be back in 10 years uh, with another set of guidelines? Well, who knows? Um, guidelines evolve over time, um, but I, I don't know if they could go any lower. We knew that they would be lower than the 2011. We knew that going into it. We didn't appreciate how low that they were going to come out at. Although, you know, we had been looking at it through the lens of that one in 100 risk level as opposed to a one in 1,000. So when you use the same standard that you use for other voluntary activity, it's, um, you know, it's sobering. And, and what we, we also know is that there's no absolutely safe level. And this is problematic. And of course, this is where the, the prohibitionists, uh, or, you know, the accusation of being a prohibitionist comes in. There's no guaranteed safe level. And, and an example of that might be when you're not even drinking, but you're in a drinking establishment with other people and a fight breaks out. Um, you come to harm. That's because of alcohol. It's not your drinking. It's because of other people's drinking. But it's around alcohol exposure like secondhand smoke, if you will. But the um, we really felt that, that at that two standard drink per week level, it was low to negligible in terms of risk of harm. So that's why we, we benchmarked it as low. Well, many people would say that, you know, with, with every toxin, it's a dose, right? There, there's a dose and below that, it's not toxic. Uh, you know, any, any substance is toxic at a certain dose. There's typically a threshold that, uh, so, you know, not being an expert in this field, you would expect that at some point there is a, a safe threshold that your body can maintain itself and not be harmed. Um, is it, but you, you're saying that maybe there isn't or? Well, with, with toxins, again, you're looking at what, what is the level of harm? What, what do you describe as, as harm? You know, it's a toxin at this level. But what's happening cumulatively at a lower level and what what is the risk or harm that you're looking at? Is it mortality? Is it morbidity? Um, we, we looked at, we benchmarked it with years of uh, life lost. And again, use that one in 1,000 and then a one in 100 uh, level. And that's the challenge with, with toxins. Yes, there's international toxicological standards uh, with regards to the analysis. Um, 
but that you know that doesn't mean that below those levels there's no impact at all it's not a all or none there's an incremental increase and then it reaches a threshold where it's measured and, and we say yes here's where the line is drawn and uh, this is now where it becomes problematic mm-hmm. okay well that that's very that's been very helpful to to go over the um the work that you guys have done and the 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 basis behind these new guidelines i really appreciate you taking the time to come and and chat with us and explain your work and good luck on on the publication of of the, the scientific paper i'm sure that would be uh, helpful to everyone to 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 be able to go over that and, and take a look at it so right. thanks so much for for spending the time to come on my my pleasure uh, for coming on i'll send you a t-shirt from from the rational view that you can you can uh, wear around that would be great size medium if you would <laughs> excellent okay thank you very much thanks so very very much nice chatting with you If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.